0: Hello, and welcome to me reading shit, me being Jack Warder. Today we have chapter 5 of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. This is a shorter one, so a good one to ease back in with. So without further ado, let's just get started. Chapter 5, In the Golden Age. In another moment, we were standing face to face, and I in this fragile thing out of the futurity. he came straight up to me and laughed into my eyes. The absence from his bearing of any sign of fear struck me at once. Then he turned to the two others who were following him and spoke to them in a strange and very sweet and liquid tongue. There were others coming, and presently a little group of perhaps eight or ten of these exquisite creatures were about me. One of them addressed me. It came into my head, oddly enough, that my voice was too harsh and deep for them. So I shook my head, pointed to my ears, and shook it again. He came to step forward, hesitated, and then touched my hand. Then I felt other soft little tentacles upon my back and shoulders. They wanted to make sure I was real. There was nothing in this at all alarming. Indeed, there were only these pretty little people that inspired confidence. A gentle gracefulness, a certain childlike ease and besides, they looked so frail that I could fancy myself flinging the whole dozen of them about the nine pins. But I made a sudden motion to warn them when I saw their little pink hands feeling at the time machine. Happily then, when it was not too late, I thought of a danger I had hit hair to forgotten. and reaching over the bars of the machine, I unscrewed the little levers that would set them in motion, and put these in my pocket. Then I turned again to see what I could do in the way of communication. And then... Looking more nearly into their features, I saw some further peculiarities in their Dresden China type of prettiness. Their hair, which was uniformly cut, came to a sharp end at the neck and cheek. There was not the faintest suggestion of it on the face, and their ears were singularly minute. The mouths were small with bright red, rather thin lips, and little chins ran to a point. The eyes were large and mild, and this may seem a bit of egotism on my part. I fancied even that there was a certain lack of interest I might have expected in them. As they made no effort to communicate with me but simply stood round me smiling and speaking in soft cooing noises to each other, I began the conversation. I pointed to the time machine and to myself, then, hesitating for a moment on how to express time, I pointed to the sun. At once, a quaintly pretty little figure in checkered purple and white followed my gesture, and then, astonished by me imitating the sound of thunder... For a moment, I was staggered, though the importance of his gesture was plain enough. The question had come into my mind abruptly. Were these creatures fools? You may hardly understand how it took me. I had always anticipated that the people of the year 802,000-odd would be incredibly in front of us. Knowledge, art, everything. Then, one of them suddenly asked me a question that showed him to be on the intellectual level of a five-year-old child. Asked me, in fact, if I had come from the sun in a thunderstorm. It let loose of the judgment I had suspended upon their clothes, their frail light limbs, and fragile features. A flow of disappointment rushed into my mind. For a moment, I felt I had built the time machine in vain. I nodded, pointed to the sun, and gave them such a vivid rendering of a thunderclap as startled them. They all withdrew a pace or so and bowed. Then came one laughing towards me carrying a chain of beautiful flowers, altogether new to me, and put it on my neck. The idea was received with melodious applause, and presently they were all running to and fro for flowers, laughing, flinging them upon me until I was smothered with blossoms. You who have never seen the like can scarcely imagine what delicate and wonderful flowers countless years of culture had created. Then somebody suggested that their playthings should be exhibited in the nearest building, and so I was led past the sphinx of white marble, which had seemed to watch me all the way with a smile at my astonishment, towards a grey edifice of fretted stone. As I went with them, the memory of my confident anticipations of profoundly grave and intellectual posterity came with irresistible merriment to my mind. The building had a huge entry, and was altogether of colossal dimensions. I was naturally more occupied with the growing crowd of little people and with their big open portals that yawned before me, shadowy shadowy and mysterious. My general impression of the world I saw over their heads was a tangled waste of beautiful bushes and flowers and long-neglected and yet weedless gardens. I saw a number of tall spikes of strange white flowers measuring a foot, perhaps, in the spread of the waxen petals. They scattered, as if wild, among the variegated shrubs, but as I say, I did not examine them closely at this time. The time machine was left deserted on the turf among the rhododendrons. The arch of the doorway was richly carved, but naturally I did not observe the carving very narrowly, though I fancied I saw suggestions of old Phoenician decorations as I passed through, and it struck me that they were very badly broken and weather-worn. Several more bright-clad people met me in the doorway, and so we entered, I, dressed in dingy 19th-century garment, looking grotesque enough garlanded with flowers and surrounded by an eddying mass of bright, soft-colored robes and shining white limbs and a melodious whirl of laughter and laughing speech. The big doorway opened proportionately great hall, hung with brown. The roof was in shadow and the windows, partially glazed with colored glass and partially unglazed, admitted tempered light. The floor was made up of huge blocks of some very hard white metal, not plates, nor slabs, blocks. And it was so much worn as I judged by going to and fro of past generations as to be deeply channeled along the more frequented ways. Transverse to length were innumerable tables made of slabs of polished stone, raised perhaps a foot from the floor, and upon these were heaps of fruits. Some I recognized as a kind of hypertrophied raspberry and orange, but for the most part, they were strange. Between the tables was a scattered number of cushions. Upon, these great conductors seated themselves, signing for me to do likewise. With pretty absence of ceremony, they began to eat fruit with their hands, flinging peels and stalks and so forth into the round openings in the side of the tables. I was not loath to follow their example, for I felt thirsty and hungry. As I did, I surveyed the hall at my leisure. And perhaps the thing that struck me most was its dilapidated look. The stained windows, which displayed only geometrical patterns, were broken in many places, and the curtains hung across the lower end were thick with dust, and it caught my eye that the corner of the marble table near me was fractured. Nevertheless, the general effect was extremely rich and picturesque. There were, perhaps, a couple hundred people dining in the hall, and most of them seated as near to me as they could were watching me with interest, their little eyes shining over the fruit they were eating. All were clad in the same soft and yet strong silky material. Fruit, by and by, was all of their diet. These people of the remote future were strict vegetarians, and while I was with them, in spite of some carnal cravings, I had to be very frugivorous also. Indeed, I found afterwards that horses, cattle, sheep, dogs had followed the ichthyosaurus into extinction. But the fruits were delightful one in particular that seemed to be in season all the time i was there a flowery thing and three-sided husk was especially good and i made it my staple at first i was puzzled by all these strange fruits and by the strange flowers i saw but later i began to perceive their import however i'm telling you of my fruit dinner in the distant future now so soon as my appetite was a little checked i determined to make some resolute attempt to learn the speech of these new men Clearly that was the next thing to do. The fruit seemed to be a convenient thing to begin upon, and holding one of these up, I began a series of interrogative sounds and gestures. I had some considerable difficulty in conveying my meaning. At first, my attempts met with stares of surprise or indistinguishable laughter, but presently a fair-haired little creature seemed to grasp my intention and repeated a name. They had to chatter and explain the business at great length to each other, and my first attempts to make the exquisite little sounds of their language caused an immense amount of genuine, if uncivil, amusement. However, I felt like a schoolmaster amidst children and persisted, and presently I had a score of noun substantives at least at my command. And then I got to demonstrative pronouns, and even the verb to eat, but it was slow work, and the little people soon tired and wanted to get away from my interrogations. So I determined that rather of necessity to let them give their lessons in little doses when they felt so inclined. And very little doses I found they were before long, for I never met people more indolent or more easily fatigued.